Maybe some of you are old enough to remember a movie that was released in 1992 by the title, A Few Good Men. Mm -hmm. And if you know the movie, you already know the line I am going to quote. The movie revolves around the court-martial of two U.S. Marines who were charged in the murder of a fellow soldier and the tribulations of their attorneys as they prepare a case to defend them. The lawyer, Daniel Caffey, played by Tom Cruise, is defending the two Marines. And the only way that he is going to win this case is that he has to get Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, to get on the witness stand and admit in public that he ordered a code red. Now, a code red is a hazing of a soldier which leads to death, and you might suspect that it is illegal to do such a thing. So Caffey catches Jessup in a lie. And when he does, he begins to press him and to question him and to taunt him. And Jessup is just fuming from the inside out. When the conversation comes to a climax, Caffey says, did you order the code red? In a destructive moment of arrogance, thinking he is above the law, Jessup says, you want answers? Caffey, I think I'm entitled. Jessup, you want answers? Caffey, I want the truth. And then, wait for it. Then, Jessup delivers the line. Say it with me. You can't handle the truth. Yeah. And then he proceeds to admit in public that he ordered the code red. In disgust, he gets out of his seat to head out of the room, but he is arrested. Hmm. Today, as we continue in our journey through the life of Jesus, through the lens of Mark, we have come to the final week in the life of Jesus on earth, and we are going to discover something very similar. The religious leaders are taunting and questioning and jabbing at Jesus in public with the goal that he might say something that would discredit him in front of the people who are super in love with him, and as a result, they're going to be able to arrest him and ultimately kill him. Listen, in the span of one week, from Sunday to Sunday, we're going to go from the crowds shouting Hosanna to the crowds shouting crucify him in the span of one week. And what, we, what they don't know that we now know is that Jesus wanted the same outcome at the end of the week that the religious leaders wanted. 
he too ultimately knew he needed to be crucified. And therefore, we're going to find that Jesus is going to taunt them back. You may have noticed, if you have been following us in this series in the Gospel of Mark, or you've been watching the six episodes on the life of Jesus on the Gospel of Mark, or you've been engaging in this listening plan for 10 minutes a day through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that up to this point, on several occasions, the religious leaders were not able to nail him, so to speak, because he said, my time has not yet come. But now, today, we come to Mark chapter 11, and Jesus said, My time has now come. Let's do this. Now, just in the same spirit of the arrogance of Colonel Jessup, these religious leaders believe that they are controlling the situation. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus, in partnership with the Father and the Holy Spirit, are utterly controlling the narrative down to the minute detail. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been planning this week since the beginning of time. And so what I want to do is I want to, day by day, cover the last week in the life of Jesus. If you brought your Bibles, you can open them up to Mark chapter 11 Digital Bible, open up your Westside app, a lot of notes to take today, lots of insights, and I want to cover Sunday to Sunday. Today, I want to cover the first Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. If you'll come back for the Good Friday services, I'll cover Thursday and Friday, and then if you come on Saturday or Sunday, I will cover Saturday and Sunday, or the final day in the life of Jesus. This is called the Passion Week. And maybe for some of you who are new to church or to the Bible, the word passion certainly means that Jesus was passionate about doing something for us that we could not do for ourselves. But the word passion in this language actually means suffering. And Jesus fulfilled his passion for us through his suffering. So let's dive in. The calendar turns to Sunday, the first of two Sundays. And what we have is the triumphal entry, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And you'll see on the map here that Jesus is walking from the east, uh, Bethany, all the way into Jerusalem, which will, which will just be little under a two-mile walk. And he tells his disciples in verse 2, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it here, back here shortly. Now, doesn't this seem like kind of an odd thing for Jesus to do? For, for me, at least at first glance, it doesn't seem very majestic that the king would enter into Jerusalem for his triumphal entry on the back of a donkey, a big donkey and then a little donkey. It doesn't seem very presidential, does it? 
But it is important that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on this day on a donkey because it is the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy given 500 years earlier that tells us that when you see one entering into Jerusalem, not on a horse, not on one of those Budweiser horses, not on an elephant, but rather on a donkey and then on the baby donkey, this will be an indication that he is the true Messiah. The prophecy is found in Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foe of a donkey. When Jesus does this, he is validating. He is sending a signal. He is sending evidence that he is the one you have been waiting for. Every single detail in this last week in the life of Jesus matters. As a matter of fact, Jesus is going to fulfill, someone counted, a total of 351 prophecies, which gives you unbelievable evidence and confidence that he is the one. Just as a little side note, when we come to communion, oftentimes a pastor, a minister will accidentally say, this is the bread which represents his body, which was broken for you. You ever hear that phrase, which was broken for you? No, that's not what it says. And you must pay attention to the details. It says Jesus broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Now, why does that matter? Randy, you're being nitpicky. No, no, I'm not. Because the Old Testament said that the Messiah would have no broken bones. When Jesus comes uh, to the cross, the Roman soldiers are going to break his leg to speed up the suffocation, and when they do, they notice that he has already passed, and therefore the prophecy is fulfilled that even though he went through this extreme beating and crucifixion, not a bone on his body was broken. Now, as Jesus is riding on the donkey, this is what Mark tells us goes on. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The word Hosanna means to save or to rescue. And these people who are lining the street, entering into Jerusalem, are counting on this Jesus to rescue them from the tyranny of Roman rule and restore the dignity of the people Israel. But what they don't realize is that Jesus has come to do something much bigger for them, much bigger. Jesus has come to give them access to eternal life. He has come to remove the death penalty that hangs over the head of every human being, you and I included. How will he pull this 
off? The answer, by dying in our place. They have no idea that this is the outcome of the week. Turn the page from Sunday to Monday. It's now Monday and everything shifts from the songs of Hosanna to the cries of crucifixion. And we see here in verse 15 that Jesus is going to clear the temple of money changers. Put a simple way, Jesus is going to pick a fight with the religious leaders. He's going to taunt them and say, let's do this. Beginning in verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus is irate. Now the temple court is the only area within the temple where Gentiles, that is non-Jewish people, can enter to worship and pray to Yahweh, to pray to God. And the religious leaders made a decision to turn it into an Oak Park Mall. Now, the reason that they did this is because it's Passover and all of these guests are coming in kind of like a March Madness weekend, if you will, except it's the celebration of the Passover and they need to purchase things to prepare for the Passover, like buying animals and doves and things like that. And there's money changers because they're bringing a different currency that has to be matched up. And so it's just a hustle and bustle and Jesus turns it all over and says, this is intended to be a house of prayer for the Gentiles. And you have to ask yourself the question, when you saw those images, how do you think the religious leaders responded? How do you think they felt to this act of humiliation and public accusation? Well, Mark eleven eighteen tells us, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teachings. Sunday, Monday, now turn the calendar page to Tuesday, and it is packed with tense activity. The first thing we see is that Jesus' authority is questioned. Tuesday morning, Jesus is in the temple, and the religious leaders come to Jesus and ask him two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And two, who gave you the authority to do these things? In other words, he's saying, who gave you the authority to do what you did yesterday when you turned over the money changers? They were trying to discredit Jesus, and they had a good point. Because in reality, Jesus did not hold an official title. Like Sadducee or Pharisee or Herodian or chief priest. Jesus was not official. Jesus was not bona fide. Jesus did not have the credentials. But this is what I love about Jesus. Instead of answering them, instead he issues them a question to be answered First, he does this all the time. So here was his question. 
How about John's baptism? Is it from heaven or is it of human origin? Now we're talking about John the Baptist, the first message we gave in this series on Mark. He's asking, what do you think about John's baptism? Is it from heaven or is it from human origin? So the religious leaders huddle up together and they say, okay, here's the deal. If we say it's from heaven, uh, the crowd is going to say, then why don't you believe in him? Why did you reject him? But if we say it is of human origin, the crowd will be more upset with us than they are Jesus because the crowd likes John the Baptist. He caught us. And so they come to Jesus in public and say, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by which authority I do these things. Drop the mic. You could see smoke coming out of the nostrils of the religious leaders. Next, Jesus told a parable that exposes the Pharisees, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Right there on the spot, Jesus jumps into a parable that is going to expose the Pharisees. Now, for those of you who are new to the scriptures, a parable is, is, is a story like a fable, like an Aesop's fable that has a deeper meaning to it. And as Jesus is telling this story, he is exposing the planned attempt on his life and God's forthcoming judgment on those who are planning Jesus' death. When Jesus finishes, here's what the religious leaders thought of Jesus' little parable. Verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Here we see Jesus is intentionally goading them. He's trying to incite him. Why? Because he wants the same outcome that they want. His time has come. Jesus, it has been planned for the centuries, will die, be crucified at the Passover so that no Jewish person would miss the obvious parallel from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Lamb of God. The timing is important. So later in that day, they're going to come back uh, for more. Jesus is going to be challenged on paying taxes to Caesar. They're going to try to get Jesus in trouble with Rome on the subject of taxation. This should do it, they think. Beginning in verse 13, it reads this way. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay attention, no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Hmm. Jesus is quite clever. He asked for someone to bring him a Roman coin. Apparently, Jesus doesn't have any money on him which I think is a little hilarious because in the Old Testament we were told he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, but yet he does not have a single denarius in his pocket. And so someone brings him a Roman coin and he holds the coin up and says, someone tell me whose face is on this coin. And they say, Caesar. 
And then he delivers this brilliant line, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God's. Jesus, once again, is successful at getting out from underneath the taunting and questioning of the religious leaders. And the people, it tells us, fell in love with him all the more. They were amazed by his teaching. And so they're going to try one more angle, one more angle. Jesus is challenged on the resurrection and marriage. Jesus is going to be challenged about the topic of resurrection and about marriage. Now stay with me because I think you might find this to be interesting. A small group of wealthy, powerful religious leaders, there were multiple sects of them, one small group is called the Sadducees. And this group, unlike the others, didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, that a person would be uh, resurrected uh, after they died. And so they're trying to create some public tension by inviting Jesus to choose sides so that he might lose some of his popularity. And they do so by posing a story of a woman who has been married seven times and on all seven occasions her husband has died. And they want to know from Jesus When she is resurrected, which they don't believe in, by the way, which of these seven men will she be married to in heaven? Now, my first question would be uh, wondering what this woman is doing to knock off all seven of these men. I mean, right? I mean, do not be number eight if she comes calling, for sure, right? They wanted to know which one she would be married to, so Jesus is going to address the marriage question first and then the resurrection question. Verse 24. Jesus replied, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Ouch. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Jesus's response is, there is no marriage in heaven. So your question, you idiot, is completely irrelevant. <sighs> now, Roseanne and I, because this is the area that we're in this week, we're reading this passage together, and it dawns on Roseanne, who I have been married to for 40 years this year, which seems like eternity to her. <laughs> she recognizes that she won't have to be married to me after the resurrection in heaven. <laughs> now, I watched her face. She didn't give in there, but later, as we were doing the prayer over the meal... I heard her continuing to whisper, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm just just saying. So Jesus addresses the marriage question. Now he's going to go after the question they really wanted, which is the question of resurrection. And he takes them back to the books of Moses, which would be the first five books of the Old Testament. And he cites an encounter that Moses has with with God at the burning bush, which would be the book of Exodus. And here Jesus is quoting God as to saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And then Jesus drops in this line. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And then he finishes by saying, you are badly mistaken. (laughs) And that is why the Sadducees are sad, you see. I thought that was funny. Now look at chapter 12, verse 34. And from then on, 
no one dared ask him any more questions. Turn the page. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, now Wednesday. While they didn't ask him any more questions, the scheming did not stop. We now move from the religious leaders to one of Jesus' very own disciples who are going to throw him under the bus. Judas's decision to betray Jesus takes place on a Wednesday. He's having a meal with Jesus and the disciples and Simon the leper and Mary, and it is in this meal that he makes the decision. Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Oh, this is going to take Jesus by surprise. Not... Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13 prophesied that in fact Jesus would be trade for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus knew that this was coming. He is controlling every single minute detail of the unfolding of this narrative because it is important. Did a little deeper dive. Did you know that 30 pieces of silver wasn't that much money? It was the amount of money to buy a slave, the price of a slave. And don't let the contrast of the meal that he was in with Simon the leopard, the disciples, and Mary, when Mary pours an entire bottle of perfumed ointment onto the body of Jesus, a body, a bottle of ointment that is worth a year's wages. Oh, see the contrast. Someone writes, great is the cost of devotion. Cheap is the price of betrayal. Mm. Jesus never fell for the repeated attempts to trip him up. Jesus never admitted on the witness stand that he had issued a code red that took the life of an innocent person. His mission was completely different. Listen to this. Two days from Wednesday, Friday, Jesus is going to issue a new kind of code red. This code red will not take the life of an innocent man, but this brand of code red will in fact save the lives of many guilty people. On Thursday, just like Colonel Jessup, Jesus is going to be arrested. Because he's guilty? No. As it turns out, at the end of the day, he is the only innocent one among us. Not only the people then, but the people now. This is what he had to do to be our Hosanna. So I ask you the question, can you handle the truth? 
The truth is, Jesus' intent in coming to us all alone, all along, was to die in our place. The truth is, Jesus fulfilled 351 prophecies according to the letter of the law to give you all the evidence you need that he is, in fact, the Savior, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. The truth is, you and I are guilty. And we deserve to die. The truth is, if we will sing songs, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he will become our Hosanna. He will save us and he will rescue us. And I have to tell you, I don't know about you, but I want to be rescued. I want to be rescued from the death penalty that hangs over me, that hangs over you, whether you knew it or not. And not just the the terror of dying, but even the thought of what might happen on the other side of death. I want to be rescued from that. But not just that, but also the terror that I experience on this side, awaiting for death. You think of my story. How about your story? My brother has a stroke, and he cannot speak. I will not have a conversation with him for the rest of our lives together. Roseanne's brother at the age of 59 dies of a horrific cancer. One of my closest friends in all the world gets the diagnosis of ALS the month before he retires and I'm watching this disease suck the life out of his body. And I have my own private fears about my own health and how it's all gonna come down. But but not just fears of death, but the trauma of sin that causes the death, the sin that reigns in my own life, the sin that reigns in our world that creates betrayal and hatred and division and death and murder and trauma and anxiety and division. I don't know about you, but I want to be rescued. And if you agree with me on that, give me a Hosanna. I mean, I said, if you agree with me on that, give me a Hosanna. 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 